be a conservative. But what does conservative really mean these days? The Monica Perez Show starts now. This is Monica Perez, your libertarian voice on News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. Normally Saturdays from 3 to 6, but I have a bonus show this week. So we are on from 12 to 2. We are live, 404-872-0750 or 800-WSB-TALK. If you watched Trump's marathon CPAC speech yesterday, you'll know what my intro was talking about. He, uh, I, I was blown away by uh, one thing that he said right off the bat. And it, it kind of triggered me, I guess. So, first of all, let's say hello to Binkley. Hey, Binkley, how are you doing? Fantastic. How are you? Great. My trusty producer here who I asked at the last minute this morning to just isolate this soundbite of Trump's from CPAC yesterday. And let's see if people can understand why it would trigger me. So uh, is it is it too soon for me to <laughs> make you jump in with both feet? And let's hear uh, that. It's like maybe 20 seconds. Let's hear that if you got it. So you had 17 Republicans plus me. And I was probably more of a conservative than a Republican. People just didn't quite understand that. They didn't understand it. I think now with what we've done with the judiciary and so many other things, I think they get it very well. And it's driving the other side crazy. It's driving me crazy because here's the thing. I was raised by a traditional conservative. I'm a libertarian. My father's a traditional conservative, my parents. And they... That traditional conservatism is kind of what, and this, like, people can't, I have to say this a couple of times because people don't, can't hear what I'm saying. It's classical liberalism. Now, liberalism, like in Europe, they still kind of use it this way, but liberalism meant freedom, freedom, like more freedom at the personal level as opposed to government, uh, the government level. So when you hear Europeans talk about liberals, they're really more talking about libertarians. And here, classical liberalism is the founding principle of the of this country. So our founders were classical liberals. It's a, an enlightenment. It came out of the enlightenment. And my father is a traditional conservative, which is kind of the modern word for, for classical liberal. And what it what it was was this. Uh, it's fiscal conservatism and basically that's it that the federal government has only one responsibility or it's that they are defending physically the borders national defense and then the supreme court should arbitrate cases at that level i actually don't even think the supreme court should decide whether congressional laws are constitutional. I think that should be, the states should nullify, should just simply not obey congressional laws that are unconstitutional. And Congress, the feds, don't have a domestic law enforcement arm in the Constitution. So there would be no way for them to come into your state and enforce unconstitutional laws. Then you have the FBI, which I then was starting to think must be unconstitutional. 
So, or at least undermines what that was. So you could just ignore the laws. There's nothing they could do about it. I guess um, they could invade, which they had, they did. But so, so I was raised to think that the federal government was very small and that was the only power, the powers they really had, very well-defined, narrowly defined powers. And that the only legitimate function of government is, is defense and dispute uh, reconciliation, dispute, arbitration, whatever. So when I hear people talk about conservative, it folded in all this other stuff. It's more like the Tea Party. Traditional conservative is more like the Tea Party. And then when I hear people talk about traditional, about being a conservative now, I think what they're really saying is that they're neoconservatives and they don't really even know that that's what it means. So this CPAC was full of young people. If you look at the audience, very young people. And they probably don't realize that there was a changing of the guard to conservatism, to neoconservatism from conservatism. And it not only embraces this idea of foreign intervention, which is the defense of this country is meant to secure the borders, not to control other countries on behalf of American interests abroad. There is no such thing. There's no government right to to pave the way for American interests abroad. So one of the best things I ever wrote was a um, a summary, a critique, whatever, of a book written by Irving Kristol, Bill Kristol's father. Bill Kristol, I think, is the editor of Weekly Standard or That's um, right. is that what he is doing right now? Thank yeah. You. And he's a shill on CNN. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I never watched CNN. So, so his father wrote a book, the auto, Neoconservatism, the Autobiography of an Idea. This was Irvin Kristol, his father. And and they did. And, and actually, I'm going to give you the punchline first, which is he writes, I believe in the intro, He writes, I have been a neo-Marxist, a neo-Trotskyist, a neo-socialist, a neo-liberal, and finally a neo-conservative. If you hear that Marx, Trotsky, socialist, liberal, finally neo-conservative, that's not a progression that people who call themselves conservatives today would think was natural. But it is because they came in and they took over in order to use the power of government for their own purposes. And in the CPAC speech, Trump actually said, we are winning again. It used to be the rich people, the elite people were using the U.S. government for their own purposes or the U.S. country for their own purposes. And that stopped. But when he says he's a conservative, he can't possibly mean a real conservative because, or a traditional conservative, because... We have a $1.3 trillion budget. We have a 23, something like that, trillion dollar national debt. He talks about his number one priority. Number one, it's what he talks about the day he was elected, is a massive federal infrastructure project. These are not traditional conservative ideas. And then, but, but he, but going into Venezuela, (laughs) involving ourselves in foreign policy like that is a neoconservative thing. And if you don't believe me, I get a lot of flack for this. Uh, I can tell you, I'll read to you the 
some of the points from this neoconservative autobiography. It says, I'll just read, there's several quotes. I'll just read them over the course of the show. Start here. Uh, The Republican Party, this is a quote from the book, has never fully reconciled itself to the welfare state and therefore has never given comprehensive thought to the question of what a conservative welfare state would look like. The idea of a welfare state is in itself perfectly consistent with a conservative political philosophy. As Bismarck knew 100 years ago, in our urbanized, industrialized, highly mobile society, People need governmental action of some kind if they are to cope with many of their problems, old age, illness, unemployment, etc. They need such assistance. They demand it. They will get it. The only interesting political question is, how will they get it? This is not a question the Republican Party has faced up to because it still feels deep down that a welfare state is inconsistent with such traditional American virtues as self-reliance and individual liberty. Now, he wrote this like 40 years ago. So we, I think the Republicans have reconciled themselves to a welfare state for sure. But what he said about Bismarck was not true. What Bismarck said to the Kaiser is these people, after the, during the Industrial Revolution, these people are getting too rich and independent. We need to take some of their money and make sure that they need it to be for their old age or whatever so that they will love you and their dependents. So that purpose, he's citing Bismarck. Bismarck wasn't there because because the people were demanding government help because things were getting harder during the industrial times. He was, it was getting easier. They were getting richer and they didn't need government. They weren't afraid, fiscally afraid anymore. And he knew that was going to erode the power of the authority. And so he wanted to institute that by taking the money and giving it back to them, making them need it. And that's exactly what Crystal wants, although he defines conservative welfare state a little differently. He says, the basic principle behind a conservative welfare state ought to be a simple one. Wherever possible, people should be allowed to keep their own money rather than having it transferred via taxes to the state on condition they put it to certain defined uses. So that's Obamacare. That's what Obamacare was. It was just, and the defined use isn't even health, isn't even health care. It's health insurance. So when Trump says tariffs is going to help us take our, uh, our country back, that's what he talked about in the speech yesterday. I immediately thought that won't do it. It's, it's the Fed. It's stopping the, the people, the entity, the industry that funnels all the money up to the top is banking and insurance. And when you think about how the taxes work, what are your deductions? What are your mandates? Health insurance, uh, a mortgage, the interest on your mortgage. It's not health care. It's not rent. It's not the principal. It's the financial instruments. And that is a tax subsidy to the finance industry. That's where the swamp is. That's where the power is. Somebody asked me yesterday, who's us versus them? The them is where all the money is funneling up to the top. And, And Crystal knows that. So uh, he and he goes further and he says, if the Republican Party were capable of thinking politically, thinking in terms of shaping the future, it would realize that its first priority is to shape the budget, not balance it. Then it could go to the electorate with the proper political questions. How do you want the budget balanced by more taxes for government services or by lower taxes, lower government expenditures and incentives for the citizen to provide for his own welfare? So he talks about shaping the budget, not controlling it. And that is exactly what 
the new Republican Party and the new conservatives do. They don't. He goes on to say there is no political power without big governments. So running on a platform of smaller government is a waste and it doesn't matter. He actually says that. It says, unless and until the Republican Party is willing to overcome its bookkeeping inhibitions and become a truly political party, it will be of only marginal significance which faction is in control or which candidate it proposes. So Ron Paul does them no good. They'd rather lose. They'd rather be second in a big welfare state, the welfare warfare super state, than be first in a limited government, limited constitutional government. That's what conservatism is now. And uh, there's more of this, <laughs> but I'm not going to read anymore. Maybe I'll read a couple of more things. But uh, I want to get into how that floats out into this uh, idea of socialism being um, Trump and Pence both so down with socialism. Let's get into what that really even means. So, uh, And I'll take your calls after the break, 404-872-0750 or 800 WSB Talk. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. And now for something completely different. On News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB. I am your libertarian voice on WSB. I am live today, 12 to 2, Sunday. Feel free to give me a call, 404-872-0750, 800 WSB Talk. We were, I was just noticing, talking about Trump's speech at CPAC yesterday, where he calls himself a conservative, and in my, what drives me crazy is when he and Pence uh, denounce socialism while fully in support of the welfare warfare super state. They don't come out and say, we need limited government, restore the Tenth Amendment. Uh, I just don't hear that. I hear... We need to to use the power and promise of big government for you because it's been used for the other people for too long. And actually, that it's funny because when he talks about tariffs, when he talks about controlling immigration, those are actually labor, labor positions in Europe. So in Europe, they don't have that. From what I see when I hear liberal, a lot of times they're talking about like libertarian, liberal meaning free. And uh, liberty and the what we would call liberals are their labor, their labor party. And traditionally, our Democrats were labor. So they would want tariffs. They would want immigration control to protect U.S. jobs. But they don't now. So what we have is that kind of labor driven, like it's almost like the Republican Party is morphing into this labor driven socialism. It is sort of fascism because they use it. It's. It's like the dialectic in the 20th century was socialist nationalism and socialist internationalism, like taking all the judgmental stuff out of it, all the Hitler stuff out of it, the fascist, like Mussolini type fascist versus the uh, communist stuff was really the difference between nationalism and internationalism. And now what it looks like we have is this idea of protecting the worker. I mean, I don't like the word nationalism, but it's kind of means something, you know, and then versus what has kind of completely removed itself from that and this cultural Marxism where it's all about identity is about internationalism. It's about diversity. It's like that is the other pillar of the dialectic. So I think it's important to get the terms right. And I want to talk about that and how that folds in with Ocasio and uh, and some stuff we were talking about yesterday. 
Be back with some calls, 800-WSB-TALK, or tweets at Monica Perez Show. Monica Perez. They think they control the galaxy. I disagree. On News 95.5 at AM 750, WSB. So yesterday I had a drop like that. It was Triple G, Gennady Golovkin, my favorite boxer. And I asked the first person who could tell who it was. His famous line is, big drama show. If you know any boxing, you know that's true. Nobody got it. <laughs> so I decided to do a different one. If you just heard that drop of they think they control the galaxy, I disagree. If you know who that was, you can get the prize pack by calling 404-741-0750. And the prize pack is a pair of tickets to see Casey and the Sunshine Band Thursday, March 14th at Cobb Energy Performance Performing Arts Center. Tickets are on sale now at Ticketmaster.com and the Cobb Energy Center box office. So that number again is 404-741-0750 if you know who that was speaking. So, and if nobody gets it, we'll just give it away for nothing. <laughs> uh, so, Binkley, my producer Binkley, in case you're just tuning in, my faithful sidekick. How you doing? I'm great. So How are you? <laughs> asked you that already all right so here's the thing i was talking about trump at cpac it triggers me i try not to get so uh immersed in ideology anymore because he's called himself a conservative you'd have to redefine conservative to call him that and when they denounce socialism you have to look at their calls for uh, big spending, their big budgets, all that stuff, and just uh, uh, redefine all these terms. I'm a staunch opponent of big government, both because I don't like my money being stolen, but more importantly, because I think it's, it is actually immoral what they use it for. Both the welfare state and the warfare state is immoral. Because the welfare state, not only because it steals, but because when it gives, it it dehumanizes and disempowers people and it's it's in it's important they must make people feel disempowered in order for them to feel like they need welfare so they deliberately uh cloward and priven i don't i can't remember the i think those were the names in the 60s went in and deliberately targeted inner cities and part of it was that getting this free money was contingent on breaking up the family, which creates a cycle of dependency. It's immoral. It's worse to steal the money than it's worse to give it than to, than just the stealing. And then of course the warfare state is going into other countries, uh, making America an exception to the law of nations, which requires respect for the sovereignty of others. So uh, I don't care about the terms anymore. I'm not even sure I care about which theory makes more sense, socialism or capitalism. But uh, I'm so disgusted that that the politics has gotten to the point where it's just a show and uh, we it's there's very little good faith ideology anymore. And I think that's true on the right and the left. And I think what we're seeing is the showmanship on the right and the left. Uh, People love it. When I was watching that CPAC thing with Trump, he was really putting on a show. I mean, Ronald Reagan used to inspire you emotionally, make you feel like a better person. Trump Trump does another service where he makes you feel like a winner. 
Like you're on the winning side. It makes you feel excited and winny. <laughs> Even if it has no content that previously would have been something that people wanted. Like a foreign intervention in Venezuela or $1.3 trillion budget or tariffs or infrastructure spending is just not a, a conservative or a Republican platform. So winning what? <laughs> you know? But you pointed out, Binkley... Something really interesting a long time ago, and I just did not, I, I didn't fully realize how true it was. You used to say Ocasio, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, was the Trump of the left. So yeah. uh, what made you say that? And then I'm going to say how how prescient you are, how right you are, how ahead of the curve you were. She does publicity stunts the same way Trump does publicity stunts. Her whole thing is owning the conservatives. Trump's whole thing is owning the libs, and that's what gets people to rally behind them. And they're both great at it. Very interesting. So, yeah, and you're right. Like the – I think there are other elements too where she's vulgar. Yeah. You know, but it's but it's obvious. Like Hyperbole. It's, it's more for, force, yeah. And – um. She has a very loose relationship with the facts. I'm not saying Trump does. I'm saying that's what they say about Trump, but that's what she does too. So yeah. that it just seems across the board she's a uh, – sh- sh- she's about the show. She's about the emotion. She's about yeah. the triggering. She's about having the nerve. That's, yeah, having the nerve. That's a great way to put it. If you yeah. ever want to trigger a progressive, then say to them – Cortez is so smart, brilliant, knows exactly what she's doing. Pause and say she's just like Trump. <laughs> but she is like Trump, but not for those reasons. So, but here, so here's why you were prescient in that. It's it. This was a uh, Wall Street Journal article from last week by Buckley. I don't know which Buckley it was. Not a not a Buckley I knew. His initials, his first initial was F. Is it any wonder that we're charmed by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's dance video and her willingness to thumb her nose at the pieties of politics? Her ideas may be crazy, but we tune them out to enjoy the entertainment. Sound like someone you know? Yeah. <laughs> Is it any wonder? Let's replace that. Is it any wonder that we're charmed by President Trump's... Uh, S-hole comment and his willingness to thumb his nose at the pieties of politics. His ideas may be crazy, but we tune them out to enjoy the entertainment. I feel like you could literally say that about not I'm not I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that where as far as the meme goes, that's what I'm hearing. And then uh, just right like I think that day Ginny tweeted to us very uh, um, regular tweet. Just heard Rush saying how absurd the left is because they only love Ocasio-Cortez because she's new to politics, gets in Republicans' faces, and stands against <laughs> conservatism, which is hilarious when you consider most Republicans' top three reasons they love Trump is that list. Hashtag hypocritical much? <laughs> so she she immediately picked up on this, what I call hashtag meme rising, that now it's out in the open. That Ocasio is a Trump, and not only is it her leveraging off of that approach, 
but now they get to make it a dialectic in itself where you can say that and it'll really make the left mad, which, you know, is just a bonus. And everybody likes that. You know, you want to make each other mad. Like, that's what the Cohen testimony, to my mind, was about. Like, they could have, they can actually have an investigation and probably convict anyone in this country of something serious because there's like a million laws, like literally a million laws on the books. So if they want to get Trump and they confiscated millions of documents from Cohen, my guess is we didn't need uh, ambiguity and name calling to to put that thing to bed. But that's what we got because they like the fights. The fights are important. The personal stuff is important. When Trump did a CPAC speech, it was all, and then Comey came at me and then Mueller came at me. And then this guy and I just gave him the one, two. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, it's like, and everyone's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, excuse me, we have a $23 trillion debt. Do you not, is this not the conservative, whatever? So it's a culture war, man. It's a culture war, cultural Marxism. That's what it's all about. And when we pivot to that, we play into that. Dean sent me a good article. I appreciate that, Dean, that I was trying to, like, figure out the Frankfurt School, which gave rise to cultural Marxism. What happened was so that the dialectic that they were working on in the 20th century was that or how it was supposed to unfold was the first communism was trying to take hold. Workers of the world unite. It was not working. They just didn't have the critical mass. So they figured with the war, they could just show to people, hey, like, look, capitalism, it's their war. Forget it. Put down your arms and just rise up as like a third, whatever, fifth column, whatever. But they didn't. They all took up arms and defended their country. So the economic call to action could not trump that sense of national unity that people felt um, just ethnically. So what they did was... They had to use identity to divide the people so that you could get you could break down those national borders and have central world central control, which is what they want. So they start with women. They start with sexual orientation, stuff that's already uh, a diverse div- creates diversity within a nation. But then they use immigration as a and, and also natural ethnic divisions within um, nation states, but they use immigration as a weapon to get more disparate groups in the country to create division that the national borders can't hold. And so that's why you have cultural Marxism now as the power center of the left here, rather than the labor issues that are now being adopted by the right. It's kind of screwy. So, but yeah, so when you said it's a culture war, that's actually the essence of it. That's what that's what they decided to make it. And I remember in 2012, there was like a, quote, leaked document. I believe it was 2012 from the Obama campaign that said, we're giving up on the white working class and we're just going for minorities. Like that was not news to anybody, but it but it validated in people's minds that there was an abandoned class that was ripe for the picking. So it validates how Trump got a power base. I believe that populist stuff is baloney. It was manufactured, but the narrative is there and that's why people believe it. Now we have a culture war on our hands, which isn't really based on anything but this rhetoric, but these characters, in my opinion. So what were you, but, but they don't think it's funny, right? So what were you saying? Did you, was it last night that you were watching TV and Yes, SNL did the Cohen hearing as their opening scene, and they had a character playing Cortez, and they can't even make fun of her. The insult on her 
was that she somebody said, are you going to do a dance, Cortez? And she said, uh, no, I'm going to ask a bunch of really great questions because I'm amazing. That was basically the insult, <laughs> how amazing she is. And I'm sure that the audience just just cracked up hysterically. I mean, give me a break. No, comedy has really lost its humor on both sides. They can't make fun of their own because they just will not. They they are like dead freaking serious about that. And they won't make fun of the other side because it humanizes them. Yeah. So they won't do that either. My uncle is a Catholic priest and he turned me on to Murray Rothbard, who's an anarchist. So I think that's kind of funny. But um, he said, he said something like this. Catholics are the only ones. I'm not saying this, but I guess let, let, I'll modify for him. People with objective standards or an idea of an objective truth are the only people with humor anymore because the essence of humor is the unexpected. And it's only if you expect can there be unexpected. But if you have subjectivism, if you have anything goes, if you have pure relativism, you are trained to accept even the most preposterous ideas as okay, as something you can't laugh at, that you have to accept. And so the essence of that, of the culture war, of the of that relativism, of moving, of, of not having objective principles, solid, is that you really, there is no humor because there are no standards. Anyway, now I think I had like five could you, what the heck is she talking about? Moments, which you're here to prevent. These are all my deep thoughts, I guess, <laughs> my Sunday philosophies. So uh, we can, let's open it up to calls in case I did say anything. I was like, what is she talking about? 404-872-0750. 1-800-WSB-TALK. Jackie, stay on the line. Jacqueline, sorry. Stay on the line. I'll get you after the break. And uh, you can tweet at me, at Monica Perez Show. Monica Perez. Don't hate the player, hate the game, son. On News 95.5 and AM 750, WSB. I thought somebody would win the prize pack this time around. It's Rick and Morty, my new favorite show. <laughs> but uh, not safe for kids. People are like, what? She said to listen to the watch this. No, watch it at 11 o'clock at night. Everybody's asleep. So, uh, okay, let's take a call. I want to go to Jacqueline. Jacqueline, you are on with Monica. How are you doing? Hey, Monica. I'm good. It's ATL Connector. Am I right? Yes. Yep. <laughs> awesome. Uh, I want to hear what you have to say, and then I have a question for you, and we have, I think, two minutes. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to a friend of my, a friend of mine had. Sorry, I'm getting a lot of feedback, and I'm not on speaker. Um, a friend, a friend of mine had said that he loves AOC because she's just so rebellious and against the grain, <laughs> and he hates Trump. And I'm thinking they do the exact same thing with their rhetoric. Uh, yes, they do. And I want at the in the next segment. I don't have time right now, but. I'll actually debunk that. She's she's not rebellious and against the grain. She's a created person. I think the same thing about Trump. And uh, so maybe I'll, I'll give you the reasons why after the break. But you, I wanted to ask you something else. You came to one of my uh, get-togethers, Liberty on the Rocks, and I remember uh, you identifying yourself as a conservative. And I want to know, I, I'm running out of time. Can you tell me in 15 seconds uh, what that means to you? That means that I am a constitutionalist, I believe in my constitution, and I love my country. I like it. I'm going to write that down. 
uh, or mark it. Let's mark that, and maybe we'll make a drop out of it. Uh, okay, thank you so much. And right, thanks, Monica. Thanks, your Bigley. Twitter. Yeah, but, uh, I've been on her um, at, at ATL Connectors show. I'll do it again, Jacqueline, because I love different perspectives. So let's get to that AOC stuff and the Trump stuff after the break. This is Monica Perez. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. This is Monica Perez, your libertarian voice on News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB, Saturday afternoons from 3 to 6. Today's a bonus. I'm on from 12 to 2 this Sunday live, so feel free to call 404-872-0750 or 800-WSB-TALK. You can tweet at me at Monica Perez Show. I just got a call from Jacqueline, who is the tweep at ATL Connector, a local uh, business liaison, I guess. She, uh, but I love her tweets. We have a great relationship. She calls herself a conservative. We were talking about uh, Trump at CPAC calling himself a conservative. He defined, I have to define it on his behalf as different because what ATL Connector said was she, I asked her to define it and she said she loves the Constitution and she loves this country. Now, I don't know whether Trump loves this country or not. I, I think people think he does, but. I've never heard him really say anything about the Constitution or advocate for it in any way. But for me, conservatism, uh, it is it is actually pretty close to what ATL Connector said in that conservatism means different things. It is a relative term because it means to conserve, which not change. Liberal should be a more objective term, but it isn't. It should derive from freedom. So in this country, classical liberalism and traditional conservatism are very close, if not the exact same thing, in my opinion, which is the founding principles of limited government uh, and a federation over a national state. So I think uh, the conservatism in this country is a return to the founding principles, which are classical liberal, which is libertarian, not liberal liberal like you think of it. But like in Europe, conservatism is a cult more like the monarchy because that's their past. Anyway, I don't want to split hairs by redefining terms, but it's misleading to think like what conservatism was in this country didn't have anything to do with. And I just read you passages from how and when it was redefined by Irving Kristol and his clan who had first been neoliberals and then became neoconservatives as uh, absolutely embracing and enhancing and uh, taking over the power and promise of big government in order to have political power and get what you want, which is what Trump said he was fighting against, but he isn't because he's working with and for that crap. So, uh, but another thing ATL Connector said was why people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she said they like her because they think her friends like her because they think AOC is rebellious and goes against the grain. And we were talking about how Binkley has pointed out a long time ago that Ocasio is really the Trump of the left. And that theme is starting to emerge. Rush said it. It was in the Wall Street Journal. Not in those words, but that they describe her in the terms that people describe what they like about Trump. And 
but it triggers the left if you say that. But so on during the break, Binkley found the latest tweets from Ocasio and from Trump. And just to bring home what they're that it it isn't far fetched to say that they that they serve the same purpose on the different sides of the aisle. I think I didn't hear the tweet. So let's see, Binkley, I'll tell you if I agree with you. They both have tweets from two hours ago that go after the media. Trump says the hostile Cohen testimony given by a liar to reduce his his prison time proved no collusion. His written book manuscript showed that what he said was a total lie, but fake media won't show it. And then Cortez, on the other hand, says the Post put the fact that I get into cars while proposing a plan to invest in better car technology on their front page. Pack it up, folks. The Pulitzer's been decided. No one can rival this kind of hard-hitting journalism. Wow. Sarcasm, attacking the press. You could you could put Trump's name on that, and I, I don't think people would find it. I, Randy Quaid, I can hear Randy Quaid yeah. reading that. Maybe they're dating <laughs> the two of them secretly. <laughs> I want a Randy Quaid tweet reading. If there's an easy one, let's do that. You know how I love when Randy Quaid reads Trump's tweets with gusto. But I want to talk a little bit about Ocasio. So I call BS. Uh, let me just take this uh, call. It's somebody who disagrees with me, and I, I like that, as long as it's friendly. So I'm going to go to Bill. Bill, you are on with Monica. Hi, Bill. Hello, Monica. How you doing? Uh, spicy. I'm a Goldwater conservative. All right. Let's hear it. Okay. Well, you uh, questioned uh, Trump's conservatism. He he has so many things to talk about, but uh, the Supreme Court justices, uh, Kavanaugh and uh, the person before it, and Gorsuch, the ones going up for appeals, are all, all right, well, being let's... vetted by the Federal Society. And if you listen to NPR, they call it a far-right extremist outfit. Right. And they are constitutionalist to the core. Look, hold on, Bill. Let's take it slow. Let's take it slow. What do you like about Kavanaugh as a conservative? Uh, well, just read uh, the opening of uh, Goldwater's book. Uh, the Conscience of called, a Conservative? Yeah, Conscience of a Conservative. Uh, that that just blew me away many years ago when I read it. But I'm saying, and what makes you think Brett Kavanaugh is a conservative? He's a constitutionalist. What makes you say that? Uh, he said it, and the um, uh, but his actions so far, uh, I don't I don't agree with Roe versus Wade. It's, uh, in in my opinion, a bad decision. I but, think that also is a bad decision. But here's the thing. Kavanaugh's track record does not support that he's a constitutionalist because he was supporting all the surveillance measures that violated the Fourth Amendment. I don't buy into his thing. And I think the left actually liked him because he covered up the Vince Foster murder or at least the investigation that his predecessor quit because he said, Vince Foster, the evidence does not support a ruling of suicide and further investigation is required. And I believe Kavanaugh, I, I know Kavanaugh put that to bed. So I believe he got cover from the left and that the Blasey Ford fiasco was just smoke and mirrors so that the right would think he was a champion of the right. But in fact, there's no reason to think that. And this new conservatism is willing to sacrifice the Bill of Rights for their neoconservative 
interventionism. What's the neoconservative? I, I've heard that uh, term neo, from the left. Right. The neoconservative. I was just reading, and I highly recommend, I'll tweet it out, my review, but you can read the book yourself. Uh, it's called Neoconservatism, the Autobiography of an Idea. And it was written by Irving Kristol, Bill Kristol's father, when he launched this movement to take over the Republican Party. And he says we need a conservative welfare state and we need to be more aggressive in foreign policy so that we can uh, affect what we desire in the world. It's a very controlling big government philosophy that has taken over the Republican and now neoconservative uh, national dialogue there. The, po- the political party has pivoted to what Irving Kristol called for. So you're, I, I would, a, a Goldwater conservative is okay. A Coolidge conservative is even better. But these people are not that. They throw those, all those basic principles out the window and they adopt American exceptionalism, which is an exception to the rule of law, the, the law of nations, this idea of respect for sovereignty. They say we are an exception to that. It's not a principled position. And I think this is all smoke and mirrors. Well, I, um, I welcome the, the demise of the Weekly Standard and both the Crystals, Irving and Bill. Okay, good. Uh, uh, really grated my nerves by saying that they were conservative and all that sort of thing. Because I do agree they, they wanted an intrusive government. Uh, yeah. It's going to take a while to dismantle uh, almost 100 years of uh, intrusiveness. But do you think Trump's and, trying to dismantle uh, it? Excuse me? Do you think Trump is trying to dismantle that? Yes. Give me a couple uh, of examples. Of, With infrastructure of, and tax? There's amount of regulations. I have friends in the business community who are very happy. Oh, may I make one, one real important comment? Yeah. One thing that really bugs me about Sean and Rush is that they say that conservatism is the reason that uh, we are such a great nation. Uh, and then they talk about free markets. The thing is, they don't know what uh, a free market is, and they don't know what uh, – anyway, here's the definition of capitalism. I've, uh, this is from uh, Milton Friedman. Number one, you have the God-given right to own personal property, real estate, and means of production. Number two, if you, uh, if the government wants to take your personal property, real estate, or means of production, they, you <clears throat> must be given just compensation. Then number three, if you do not get just compensation, you have the constitutional right to have a trial by by jury of your peers to determine what's just compensation. That is American capitalism. And when the left starts saying, uh, setting up straw men uh, about uh, uh, capitalism uh, exploits the workers and destroys the environment. I have to to just take issue with one thing there. That number two, I've always disagreed with this, and it is in the Constitution, but I don't agree with it. I don't agree that they that the government has the right to take your property without your consent as long as they compensate you in what the market considers just. You have the absolute right to property ownership. Now, uh, I have to disagree with you there because sometimes you need you need an interstate uh, 
a road system. Why? Uh, you need a railroad Why? system. You, the private but, industry yeah. can do that. The only successful rail system in our history was the private one. You mean the Northern Pacific? Yes. Well, yeah. They, you know, that guy had to had to ask people and use his wits. I mean, Trump did that. I believe he built a casino over somebody's house. Was that him? Because he couldn't get the her to sell it. I mean, you have to deal with that. But, you know, that's probably... He was a private entity. He was a private entity. Yeah, yeah, he that's what I'm saying. I'm saying private entities. I don't... You know, I'm an anarcho-capitalist. I'm such a capitalist. I believe that capitalism itself, the mechanisms of capitalism, will result in a self-ordering society. That you, that you, you're simply your right of self-defense, your your private property rights will give rise to peaceful trade. And um, but that's a whole nother, uh, whole nother topic. And I'm running out of time. Bill, great call. Thank you so much. Uh, tweet at me at Monica Perez Show. Be right back with more. Monica Perez. It's like everything I've been brought to believe was all made of bull****. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. We're back. Had a great call. Thank you, Bill, for calling. I really like uh, to try to get to the meat of the matter. One thing Bill said, which I thought was very important on, uh, as an application to a larger issue. One of the things that... Um, bolstered his case that Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh, was a conservative. So first of all, we could redefine, we, you know, we have to define conservative. And second of all, uh, it depends on what you use as evidence. And one of the things he said is NPR calls him a far right uh, judge or whatever. So it's evidence, it feels like evidence that the left doesn't like this person from the right. It validates his credentials as a person of the right, even though I think the left likes him because of what he did to put to bed the Vince Foster case, on, uh, which benefited Clinton. But I claim that that is exactly how Trump's numbers, that he actually won the election, or however you want to look at it, however valid you think elections are, he won the election without spending any money, basically, because CNN made it crystal clear or made it sound like they were running scared, running scared. And the guy who runs CNN is Jeff Zucker, who used to be Trump's boss on The Apprentice. So we get our narratives from the other side. And that's a little you want to give you pause. So, Binkley, you had a couple of good quotes. So I don't know if we'll get to both of them, but. May, oh, you know what? Start with the Orwell one, and then we can do the other one after. Yeah, Orwell's talking about those types of terminology you were using. He says the words democracy, socialism, freedom, patriotic, <laughs> realistic, justice have each of them several different meanings which cannot be reconciled with one another. And then he goes on to say words of this kind are often used in a consciously dishonest way. That is, the person who uses them has his own private definition, but allows his hearer to think that he means something quite different. Yes, that's what I think American exceptionalism. That's the essence of the term American exceptionalism. People hear American extraordinariness. They hear the American experiment. But what they're not really hearing is that it's an exception. It's an exception to what? It's an exception to the law of nations. That's what it refers to. And if you press them on it, 
you can find that, but they don't want to talk about the definitions. We're, we're going to talk about that. More calls after the break, 800 WSB Talk or at Monica Perez Show. Monica Perez. Maybe it's something really cool that I don't even know about, you know. On News 95.5 and AM 750, WSB. I'm the Libertarian Voice on WSB, Saturday afternoons from 3 to 6. And today, Sunday, right now, today anyway, special show 12 to 2. Next weekend, I'll have similar Sunday, 12 to 2, but only 5 to 6 on Saturday. So we are, uh, I was talking about the uh, CPAC, Trump's quote. Why why don't you replay that clip, Binkley? This is what Trump said. I took issue with this. More of a conservative than a Republican. People just didn't quite understand that. They didn't understand it. I think now with what we've done with the judiciary and so many other things, I think they get it very well. And it's driving the other side crazy. I just take issue with how how we define conservatives. So uh, I want to take a call. I'm going to go to Mike. Mike, you are on with Monica. Hi, Mike. Hi, Monica. The point you uh, just made relative to uh, a speaker sp- saying something, realizing that his audience is taking it at a different meaning, to me pertains to the last guest you had on your show yesterday afternoon. Garland. He came on he made yeah. the blanket statement that Georgia was ranked dead last, if I recall right, in voting procedures nationwide and failed to, until the very last comment, clarify that one of his prime criteria for that was ease of voting. No, 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 no. He said, I thought that's what ballot access meant. It does not. I thought he meant access to the ballot for voting. He said ballot access, meaning that if you're running, it's very hard to get on the ballot. If you're, well. uh, So, like, it's hard for a third party. What? clarifying that up front because it did not relate to the accuracy of the voting result as as far as I could tell. But yet it came across like uh, we've got a red alert here in the state of Georgia on votes not being counted or whatever heinous type things could take place when in fact it pertained more to me, it came across as pertaining more to whether or not a person could get qualified who had proper identification and so forth. Uh, I appreciate that. And I, I, oops, sorry. Uh, I, I personally don't, uh, I think there's absolutely no reason not to have ID to prove that you're eligible to vote. It makes no sense. If you're not going to, I went to law school and uh, there's a basic legal tenet that if you cannot enforce a law, it can't really be a law. So, if you don't want people to have eligibility criteria, if you if you can't test for eligibility criteria, then don't even have them. Just say presence at the poll is enough. You know what I'm saying? Like, it just doesn't make sense. And I don't think Garland objects to that. I don't know. But what he was talking yeah. about, I remember he did say it was ballot access, meaning it's very hard for like a libertarian to get on. And it's so tricky that you can have the the support and still not be on the ballot, which is a real advantage to Republicans right. and Democrats. Well, the discussions that have been had in recent months by some liberals who want just basically no ID and so forth for yeah. uh, illegal immigrants, Stacey Abrams and so forth, waiting and vote, 
uh, I would have appreciated if he had clarified it because I know we take as someone who uh, was in fact. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I'm losing you a little bit, but thank you for the opportunity to clarify that. He uh, Garland does a lot of work at Voter GA. He found it. It's such good work. I mean, he's absolutely, in my experience, nonpartisan. He will defend uh, anyone from John Ossoff to Roy Moore in election irregularities. And you should see him in action. And I'll tell you what, he's why I had him on yesterday is that there is a call to action tomorrow, uh, Monday at 9 a.m. in the covered de- Dell uh, building across from the Capitol. It's CLOB 307. It's the Senate Ethics Committee. And they're talking about new voting systems here. And through research and expertise, uh, Garland and his group have determined that the paper ballot system that they recommend is better and cheaper and that the the ballot system that they're recommending cannot be audited. So you really can never check. And this... Garland, uh, I I believe it was a criminal complaint that he filed against Brian Kemp because as secretary of state, because the 2016 election was hacked in Georgia and in the investigation, uh, the data was all erased. And that was not normal operating procedure, although it was claimed to be Uh, the uh, prosecutor. The government did not choose to pursue that case against Brian Kemp, but there are irregularities here and. We just need to be aware before this stuff gets out of control. All he's asking, all Garland wants, is for them to do a fiscal note. So if you can't make it to the meeting tomorrow at 9 a.m. in Atlanta, then just call your state senator or the legislator, uh, your favorite legislator or the governor or the secretary of state and just say, we need a fiscal note on this. We need to slow this down. We need to get the real answers, at least on the cost, uh, and also figure out the accuracy. But I have nothing but respect for Garland and and what he's doing. And next time I will make sure that it's crystal clear what he means by Georgia's terrible voting record, voting integrity, election integrity, election integrity record. Thank you very much for the call. Uh, Binkley, I wanted to ask you, what was that yesterday? Another thing we were talking about yesterday was the nature of the us versus them, like who is on the top. And it seems to be rather topical right now. Didn't you say like Alex Jones and Joe Rogan were having a tete-a-tete about that? Is that possible? Alex Jones was on Joe Rogan last week for like, felt like 12 hours. (laughs) And frequently Alex Jones says they, and Joe Rogan always catches him and says, who's they, who's they, who's them? Right, okay. And somebody asked me that question and I gave my best answer. I always think it's like, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, and the Rhodes. The, the Rhodes. Yeah, Rhodes, right? Cecil Rhodes. Oh, lizards is what I was. Oh, li- lizards. Yes, right. The um, interdimensional beings. Yes. Uh, maybe. Like, I don't know, but that's not where I am. <laughs> that's not where I am. So, but Cecil Rhodes was, he, uh, Rhodesia is named after him. He founded De Beers. This is a guy who had some power. And I always think that about Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller. If you were very long-lived you know, like 100 years old, if you were basically potentially the richest person who ever existed, you know, I mean, it depends on how you cut the numbers, but he's up there, he's in the short list, and you were bad, (laughs) you know, what would you do? And you'd probably try to control the world forever and do that by setting up 
perpetual institutions that your family could access and control and leave strict instructions. I actually knew somebody who was in a, an elite family and an ancestor of theirs wrote instructions and they, when they got the keys to the kingdom, they had to abide by those instructions. So they can't be enforced by law because there's a rule against perpetuities in law where you can't control property from the grave, but tax exempt foundations are exempt from that. There's none that applies. So I was talking about Norman Dodd yesterday who did, uh, who did the research for the Reese commission, which was the follow on from the Cox commission about if tax exempt foundations were engaged in un-American activities. And he concluded, yes, they were. And he recommended a rule against perpetuities for them. So they couldn't just exist forever with this money and this agenda uh, because like a human being could not do that. And I think it's definitely food for thought. Uh, that is one source of like, who is them? He identified the Carnegie Endowment. Uh, but I referred to the book Tragedy and Hope written by Carol Quigley, where he basically identifies the them. And I think he was digging into the records of the Council on Foreign Relations, but a lot of these endowments and foundations are networked. But you found a quote that I found interesting from Tragedy and Hope. You want to share that with us? Yes. Um, take me one second to pull it up. I've lost Oh, sorry. <laughs> Let me just bring that on you. I'll have to find it after the break. I don't All right, know. Well, no, let me went. take this call. I'll take this call. Curtis, Curtis, you are on with Monica. Hi, Curtis. Hey, I just had a comment con- concerning uh, voting. Yeah, good. Uh, it, I'm in a small county. And to go back to paper ballots, you would have to increase the number of polling stations, increase the number of poll workers. And then the other thing in nowadays with people, uh, you know, if you don't answer a text in two seconds, you're late with it. I mean, how long do you want to take to vote? I don't I don't think that's true. It's just it's just uh, like SAT stuff. I am certain that it doesn't cost more. It actually costs a lot less. So the man hour thing is not. Well, I hadn't. I hadn't spoken against the cost. I'm just right. saying. But the man it, hour it, thing it, is not relevant. You just have to pay people, and that cost is insignificant compared to what it costs for but the, the balance county. I, like this small county I live in, they have cut back to the bone, budget-wise. I suppose they can't pay the people. They have, they've lost half the people they had in the county. This is what's you know, going on. Pay... This is what's huh? going on. They, they are revamping the voting in Georgia, and there are two basic proposals on the table. A ballot scanning machine, which actually you go in and you press a screen, and your vote gets translated into a, a, a digital document that can be printed out. And then the... And then that printout goes into a pile for an audit. Or you can fill it in with a pencil, like an SAT, a standardized test, and feed it in yourself. And then that piece of paper goes into a big pile. The problem is it's, it's not auditable to have the electronic ballot because it's printed out by the machine. There is no original paper trail to see that it was the original vote. You can't just see it. It can be printed out later. It doesn't have to be printed out on the spot. You can't just watch the thing go through the machine, put it in a box, watch the box. It doesn't work like that. And then 
the cost is dramatically different. It's $100 million up front. It's going to be more for the ballot machines and $10 million a year in maintenance. All the costs have been established. But we spent an hour on it yesterday. So I can't go back. And I had my uh, I had Garland there taking calls. It'll be, if you want to listen to that, the podcast does come up on um, the propreport.com, propagandareport.libsyn. Uh, we usually put it up on Wednesdays. Uh, WSB allows us to do it commercial free, which I really appreciate. So you can listen to it on Wednesday, but you can hear it in person. You can ask Garland all the questions. You can ask the the state Senate all the questions tomorrow. It's an important issue. It's a big money issue. They're going to issue a 20-year bond to pay for a 10-year infrastructure that has a life span of 10 years. It's a 20-year bond. Makes no sense. So go talk to them yourself and show them that we're engaged and interested in this issue and want to see hear their answers. That's Monday at 9 a.m. at the Coverdell Building. CLOB 307 is the room. It's the Senate Ethics Committee. And you will see uh, Garland there. And um, let's Finish that. I got right up to the break. That's so funny that people wanted to return to that topic. Uh, Let's go right up to the break and wrap it up. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. This will not stand, you know. This aggression will not stand, man. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. I'm trying to squeeze in a lot in this last little segment. I want to talk to Bob. Bob, I'll give you one minute and the last word. Go. You're on with Monica. Uh, Hi, Monica and Bankley. Uh, I haven't called in a few years, but as you probably know, I agree with most of your assessment of our government. And I don't know how much of your program is choreographed to ensure good entertainment value. No, none. Good. But I'd like to step back, way back, and get the big picture. If you analyze only the players appearing on the stage, you can't ever understand the actual strategies and motives behind what is happening. And I know that you're not afraid to propound or to entertain other people's conspiracy theories. And I admire that courage. And I know that you were exposed to or maybe steeped in religion in your childhood, and you've expressed numerous times your openness to religion, which I also admire, but you appear to be closest to an agnostic. Uh, and I'd like to just explain, I guess, three sentences here, my philosophy, which is going to precede my question. Uh, I don't believe a literal interpretation of the Bible because it is reasonable, and I certainly don't believe it because it is unreasonable. I don't believe in Orthodox Christianity because I was catechized as a child and it was pounded in my head every day. I grew up in a rather unreligious family. I believe because faith was given to me, it was external to me, and then it was internal. Divine faith, absolute faith, not proportional. I don't believe 92% and doubt 8%. I simply believe. And I can't tell anyone else that it's reasonable for them to believe that the Bible is absolutely true. My natural mind does not see it. Dude, as Bob, I got to cut you off. You got me off track. You told the screener you wanted to talk about the celebrity status of politicians, and I only have one minute left. <laughs> I appreciate that you called back, but you gotta, you've got to stay on point. Um, Binkley had that quote you've got to read for me, so go for it, Binkley. This is from Carol Quigley. There does exist and has existed for a generation an international Anglophile network which operates to some extent in the way the radical right believes the communist act. In fact, this network, which we may identify as the roundtable group, has no aversion to cooperating with the communist or any other groups and frequently does so. So this was pointing to, and I appreciate that Bob knows I'm open to conspiracy theories and other points of view – This was talking about who is the them. 
And the them is above party. That's what that was trying to point out. Sorry. Uh, we're done. No more time. But I'll be back next weekend, Saturday 5 to 6 and Sunday 12 to 2. This is Monica Perez.